Indeed, it's a joy to turn to the book of Daniel tonight and continue in the study of Daniel chapter 2. love looking at prophecy, particularly because uh, the demonstration of the sovereignty of God as he unfolds events before they take place, and as he unfolds them, he declares them in particular and exacting detail. So that when we go back and we see the unfolding of those events, we see the mighty hand of God. And there is, again, no doubt that God is in control, orchestrating all things after his good counsel and purposes. Exactly where we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is now giving an explanation to the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had received in a dream. We'll pick up in Daniel 2 and just read verses 36 through 45. Here's what Daniel is recording. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the air, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you than a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, a strong, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, Inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, and they will combine with one another in the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery." In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will, be, will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. There is a grand demonstration by Daniel here that God has just unfolded to this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, the history of the world for the rest of history, to the end of time. This started, as we noted, back in 605 B.C. It started when Nebuchadnezzar captured Israel. It started when Nebuchadnezzar took the reign Babylon had began earlier with his father, Nebuchadnezzar. But at the time in which Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered Israel, God started the period known and referred to by Jesus Christ as the time of the Gentiles. A period of time in which God would allow particular Gentile kingdoms to rise up, to reign, to have authority, to rule, to demonstrate dominion over the world. And in that time, God would demonstrate and allow those those Gentile kingdoms to gain authority and to demonstrate authority on earth. Israel, since its captivity, has always then been a shell of its former self. And will remain as such until Christ finally comes and sets up his kingdom. And God had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar four distinct kingdoms. 
We saw the first three already. The first kingdom was that of Babylon. We see that in verses 36 through 38. And it is specific. We know it's Babylon because of what Daniel says here in verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. He's referring to Nebuchadnezzar. And from Nebuchadnezzar, a series of kingdoms came. Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, ruled for 43 years. And as he ruled over, those, over his land for those 43 years, he ruled with ultimate authority. All the known world at the time was under his authority. He answered to no one. And as we noted here that he is one of three individuals that are referred to as the king of kings. You have, you have Nebuchadnezzar here in Babylon. You have later Artaxerxes. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's king of kings and lord of lords. This title, king of kings, is the demonstrative ultimate authority. There is no authority rivaling his. Not like the Medes and the Persians, which were under the law of the Medes and the Persians. Not like the other uh, government systems where there were senates set up that would control the monarchs. This is ultimate, total authority that Nebuchadnezzar had. This is why he is the head of gold. Then we saw the second kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. That is there in verse 39, the kingdom of silver. Uh, Again, This kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, followed the Babylonian kingdom. It's not named particularly in verse 39 as called out by name, but it is referenced. And here it is said to be inferior. It is inferior to Babylon, verse 39 states. Lesser in, it's certainly uh, lesser in strength. Because ultimately it comes and conquers Babylon, but it is inferior. This is, as I believe, then demonstrated its inferiority in regards to its authority exercise. It is, again, silver. Silver is stronger than gold as a metal, but it lacks the glory that gold has. The Medo-Persian era was an era, again, that was stronger than the Babylonian At the time, they had conquered the Babylonians in 539 B.C. And they reigned until 331 B.C. When, in 331, we see the third kingdom that came, that was the kingdom of Greece. They are recognized as the bronze, the third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth, verse 39. This bronze kingdom, again, is not as glorious as the silver, nor as glorious as the gold, but it is stronger than them. The Greeks conquered the Medes and the Persians in 331 B.C. and reigned until about 146 B.C. And Greece is again characterized by bronze because their armies were clad mostly with bronze helmets and bronze breastplates and shields and swords. They used this weaponry to again conquer the whole known world. They would rule over all the earth. That's what the end of verse 39 says. This kingdom which will rule over all the earth. Referencing to the great might of Alexander the Great, who is the head leading this this third kingdom. He ruled over the whole earth from Egypt and Europe into India. And by the age of 30, he he had created one of the largest empires in the ancient world said that once he had conquered all, while he was still in his 20s, he wept because there were no more lands for him to conquer. This, again, this kingdom, this area is divided into two parts of the, of the statue. He had the belly and the thighs, likely representing two distinct and different aspects of the Greek empire, the eastern and the western territories of the Greek empire. So there's no doubt, again, that up to this point, the unfolding of the kingdoms from the Babylons to the Medes and the Persians to Greece 
And if there was any doubt at all, later on in, in Daniel chapter 8, verses 20 through 21, Daniel refers to two different animals, the shaggy goat uh, animal there with a large horn and, and the ram. And in those two animals, he calls the ram the Medo-Persians and the shaggy goats representing the kingdom of Greece. He calls out these particular kingdoms. Daniel chapter 8, verse 20, 21. So these were in reference in Daniel's mind. We now come to the most significant aspect now then of this, and it's the fourth kingdom, this divided, revived kingdom, and then the coming kingdom. And this is where we take tonight and the rest of our study, pick up this fourth kingdom Starting in verses 40 through 43, says this, Then there was a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of pottery, potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. We'll stop right there for now. This section you see again, two parts to a kingdom. The legs of iron and then the feet of iron and clay. Two parts to this kingdom, but united by iron, its strength. A kingdom, again, which would be strong. Rome came and conquered Greece in about 146 B.C. And Rome continued in two parts. The western part continued until 476 A.D. And the eastern part continued to 1453 A.D. Rome reigned for a long time over the earth. Just like the legs would be the longest Part of the statue and the vision, so the rule of Rome was the longest. Rome's power is demonstrated in it being represented by iron, its strength. Again, the strongest of all the metals, it would have been stronger, of course, than bronze, stronger than silver, stronger than gold. It would rule with an iron fist, and that's exactly what took place. Rome, when it conquered, when Enemies opposed Rome. It wasn't enough that they won. They had to completely destroy them. We saw that in AD 70 in the destruction of Masada and then of the temple when the Jews had resisted the Romans. The Roman army wasn't enough just to burn down the temple. They had to tear down the stones of the walls. Romans ruled, and they ruled with brutality, Any people that resisted, it wasn't enough simply to conquer, but they would then uh, crucify them and hang them outside so as to demonstrate this is what what happens if you go against Rome. They crush and destroy. And notice again, that's what verse 40 indicates there. There will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. And as iron crushes and shatters and it breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So how Rome conquered and crushed and brought order. They would come and rule with an iron fist. This is how Rome was able to pull off the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. They demonstrated an authority that brought peace because no one would dare go up against their authority. Because to go up against their authority would be to go up against their might. And when if you go up against their might, you would be then destroyed. These kingdoms, again, lasted for a considerable time. And like the previous kingdoms, it came in order. It came after the head of gold, after the, the breast of silver, after the belly and thighs of bronze. Next came the, in succession, the legs of silver. And this, it moved in succession. 
So that there was no gap up to this point, no gap between each of the kingdoms. It was one kingdom after another kingdom, each accomplishing the purposes intended. And then, of course, then the two empires went their way as Rome had developed the eastern and western empires. So by this point then, these two, those other kingdoms have come and gone. The Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greece, they all come and gone. And now it's Rome who is reigning. But it is the next part of this prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled. We've seen up to this point in world history the, the rise and fall of each of these kingdoms. The rise and fall of Babylon, the rise and fall of the Medo-Persians, the rise and fall of the Greeks, now the rise and fall of Rome. But this, this last part we have not yet fully seen. It is that of the feet of iron and clay. Notice again verse 41 verse 42. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. Verse 42, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. There is still yet more to be revealed. There is still more to come. At least, that's what I believe. There's actually three possible interpretations of this text. The first interpretation is that the legs and the feet, part of the vision, have already been fulfilled during the lifetime of the Roman Empire. That would place the end of this entire prophecy, both the rise and the fall of Rome and the coming kingdom all around either 476 A.D. or 1453 A.D. So that in that, you would have the first possible interpretation is everything has been completed at that time, which would mean then, for that to be true, the last kingdom, the the eternal kingdom to come, wouldn't be a physical kingdom, at least not initially. It would have to be a spiritual kingdom looking forward to some kind of future representation, possibly later. That's one possible interpretation. Second possible interpretation is that the kingdom, the the final kingdom, immediately follows the Roman Empire, and we would have to look through history to find when that kingdom unfolded. So this view, like the first view, would say that there's some time after there was a break and this, the final kingdom came. And again, the kingdom would be spiritual. The kingdom would be the church. It would be the church age that ruled. Or the third possible conclusion is that the final part that is the, both the revived Roman Empire and the coming kingdom, the eternal kingdom, is still yet future. And of course, I take this particular view. Now I need to defend for you why that is. Not just simply enough to state it. I take that view and you go home on my authority and I bless you with that. Let me show you from the text why it is that we believe that, that we would take this particular view. And there are two, two reasons primarily, with some, a lot of sub-details, but two reasons. The first is this, because Dan, this is not the only place that Daniel refers in this vision of events to come. In fact, when, and when we get to chapters 7, 8, and 11, he goes back to these very themes, and in these, in these chapters adds more details in chapters 7, 8, and 11. We know in chapter 7, again, there is the vision of four kingdoms. We saw that last time we met together. And each of those kingdoms represented different kings, those beasts that come out. In fact, we're going to see in a moment uh, in chapter 7 the vision of the, of the beast with ten horns. All I have to say is, not only does Daniel chapter 7 8 and 11 refer to this, these coming kingdoms, but also Revelation chapter 17 refers to this future kingdom, this revived Roman kingdom that is going to come. And we'll get to those in a moment. My point is to demonstrate to you this, that the, 
there are other places in divine revelation where God speaks to events to come. Which leads to the second, and this is where we'll spend a little bit more time, the details of this prophecy have not yet been fulfilled. The particular details have not yet been fulfilled. Start with verse 44. Notice, after referring to the kingdoms, notice down in verse 44, it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. The first and most obvious reason why we believe that this is yet future is because there is no presence of a kingdom that has crushed the Gentile kingdoms. There's no present kingdom right now that is ruling over the Gentile kingdoms and bringing an end. Where is the eternal kingdom? Where is that kingdom that says, as, there, as it says there in verse 44, it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms? Where is it now? Where is it operating? Where is its headquarters? You ask maybe the Roman church, and they would say, here we are operating here out of the Vatican, setting up their own authorities, but that's not this kingdom. Here, there is the, this kingdom to come. We're anticipating this kingdom that's going to rule over, again, all of the Gentile kingdoms and conquer them and bring them in subjection and rule eternally. And again, as it says, but it will itself endure forever. And then this kingdom, when it comes, isn't going to be given to another people. The people that set it up are going to rule in this kingdom forever. It will never be destroyed. It will never be threatened. It will, again, last forever. When you look at the average nation that operates, you know, operates for about 250 years, something beyond 250 years is a, you know, healthy nation. For something to, again, go forever, then there is a measurable strength. So again, there is the detail that has yet to be fulfilled. There hasn't been the coming of the eternal kingdom, and therefore we're looking for something future. But there's more. Back to verse 41 and 42, there is more. Again, it's interesting here to observe that in spotting the vision and looking at the statue in the vision, it would be sufficient enough to say that there was a head and there was a breast and two arms and there was a belly and thighs and there were two legs and there were feet. But he goes a step further in verse 41 and 42 and mentions the toes. In that I saw the feet and toes, verse 41. Verse 42, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery. He goes in and he explains the toes and draws attention to the toes. Why is that? Well, I think it's particularly because... You go analyze your feet, the average foot has five toes, you have two feet, the average toes on two feet are ten toes. Something to that particular number of ten that is significant, and this is where the parallel of other passages pick up. The ten toes have significance. Turn over to Daniel chapter 7, it's where we pick up on more details. You remember, again, Daniel chapter 7 is the parallel to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 speaks of a vision with four parts and four kingdoms. Daniel chapter 7 refers to beasts, four particular beasts. Each of those beasts represents the kings. We know that because that's exactly what verse 17 of Daniel chapter 7 says. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. 
while the vision in Daniel chapter 2 referred particularly to the kingdoms, here in chapter 7 is referring to the particular leaders, the kings themselves. And we saw already the different beasts and from verses, again, 3, 4, 5, 6. But verse 7 is where we jump in and we see there the kingdom, the last beast, the king over Rome, notice this, and I kept looking, and in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. It's dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. We will have fun when we get to that one. But to this point, we simply look at, in verse 7, the end of verse 7, that first beast had ten horns. This number of ten is significant. This beast, again, if the, the image vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 had an uh, image with ten toes, here this beast has ten horns. And again, as verse 17 indicates, that those horns, rep- or the, the beasts, each represent kings. Now, we just left there. We wouldn't really know what's going on. We would have to wonder. Even Daniel himself was wondering, what does all of this mean? In fact, verse 19 indicates that. I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, and notice it crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. This is, again, the parallel to Rome. And you see even the imagery with the teeth of iron and what it did. It crushed and it trampled Just as Rome crushed and shattered and destroyed, this last beast crushes and shatters and destroys and has the teeth of iron. Verse 20, And I wanted to know the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts. Daniel's saying, I wanted to know what this meant. What were these horns? What did they represent? I needed to know this. Now verse 23, here's the answer. Verse 23 and verse 24. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. Again, paralleling the vision in Daniel 2 which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Now verse 24. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, notice ten kings will arise. You have the toes, the ten toes. You have the ten horns. These are ten kings. And another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Again, we will get into that later. I just want you to see that there is a reference to this fourth kingdom having ten kings. Now let me ask you historically, when has Rome had ten kings? When within its history has it had ten kings ruling concurrently? You say, well, how do you know that they're ruling concurrently? I'm glad you asked. Turn over to Revelation 17. Because this is referred to again. One might be able to argue that, well, even after the end of the Roman Empire, there was a a succession of kings that came after, and they just came one after another. So you had ten other kings who came after one another. 
But in Revelation chapter 17, we are given again this glimpse into those final days. And in those final days, Revelation 17, you have, we'll start in verse 8. This is the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up and out of the abyss and it will go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth and whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast and he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom the seven heads of the seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he will remain a little while. Verse 11, the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. Now verse 12, the key. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These ten rulers will receive together at one time authority for a short period of time. Concurrently, they're not happening in succession, one after another, they're happening in Concurrently, there's an anticipation of a coming time where particular rulers, ten rulers in particular, are going to operate and rule over this particular kingdom. And again, this detail has not yet been fulfilled. Turn back to Daniel. Notice this again. You you would, uh, back in Daniel chapter 2, it is interesting how verse 44, after mentioning the feet, after mentioning the toes, after mentioning the brittle feet, after mentioning all those particular details, then notice how verse 44 begins, in the days of those kings. Which kings? Couldn't be in the days of Nebuchadnezzar and Artaxerxes and uh, Alexander the Great and the Roman leaders. It had to be the particular kings referenced by the toes, those ten kings. In the days of those ten kings, you're going to have the coming of the divine kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the coming of God's rule. So that there is, again, two ideas that recognize this is yet future. We are waiting for the revival of a Roman kingdom. And we are waiting for the particular details to unfold. The coming of ten particular kings. And at this point, that's all I'm going to say, because there is more even about those ten kings. It's the opposition that they're going to face, another who's going to come in and disrupt, etc. And we will get to that when we get to chapters 7 and 8 of Daniel. At this point, there is more to come. So what happened? I mean, obvious question then, okay, so what happened? If everything happened in succession and you move from the head to the body to the, the belly and the thighs to the legs, uh, where's the gap? What happened to, how come we haven't moved quickly into the feet? Why didn't the prophecy conclude? How come we haven't seen in chronological succession the ten kings? Well, clearly here, Daniel, looking at this vision, didn't anticipate the time gap between the legs and to the feet. God, in his eschatological plan, had not revealed that entirely. And this isn't abnormal in prophecy. Even when the Old Testament prophets anticipated the coming of the Son of God, they anticipated him both coming as the suffering servant and as the conquering King of kings and Lord of lords. 
looking at the same vision and seeing Christ off coming in the future, they saw both his first coming and his second coming. And as from the prophet's standpoint, it wouldn't exactly be clear in the picture. Later in Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 3, we have a similar time gap as Daniel's looking ahead and seeing the coming of King Artaxerxes and beyond that, coming of Alexander the Great. There's a gap. From the standpoint of the prophet, as he's looking ahead, he's seeing all of history. But there certainly isn't the unfolding of the exact event one right after another. Saw that again in the coming of Christ as both the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, and then, of course, the Ancient of Days, as, I, as Daniel chapter 7 will indicate. Now look again. There's something else that we want to observe. Why didn't it all take place? Well, again, because of the, it wasn't God's plan to unfold the exact chronological timeline. He was unfolding particular events that were going to take place. What we didn't know of, and I think this is what Paul is getting at in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, we didn't know of the particular mystery of the church age. You didn't know that of what God had unfolded for this time period of the church. But back to this text here in Daniel chapter 2, 42-44. There is something else about this kingdom that is significant. This revived Roman kingdom that is to come. And that is that what's emphasized here is that it's both strong and brittle. It has with it iron, but it's also mixed with clay. It's mixed with pottery. It has inherent weaknesses within it. The iron and the clay are going to be combined together. They're going to be joined, but there's going to be conflict within this kingdom. There's going to be areas of weakness. That's what he says in verse 42. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, but part of it will be brittle. It is going to be a collective group that together they're strong, but parts of it have great weakness. Even possible that that weakness, the brittle aspects of that kingdom, is protected by the strength of the stronger parts, the iron. And we notice that these two groups do not mix. Just as iron and clay do not mix together, this, these groups don't mix. That's what, but verse 43 says, And that you saw the iron mixed with common clay. They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Yeah, they're together. They're in cooperation, but they're not joined. This group of ten kings trained together. In this revived Roman Empire, they'll be together. They will be strong in some parts. They'll be able to demonstrate a rule, but they're not going to be very strong collectively. They're going to have some weak aspects. And it's interesting, verse 43, that phrase, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. What does that refer to? Some have concluded it could mean that there's intermarrying taking place. That among these groups, they are intermarrying, and that's how they're joined together. They're joined together through various relationships, intermarrying. That's why then taking very literally the phrase, in the seed of men. Or, and it's where I would conclude with, other interpreters, that what he's referring to here is the vast geographical area that Rome covered. The vast different people groups that the area of Rome covered, this is that united group. You went back, actually, and noticed all the areas and regions where the original footprint of Rome was. There were some vast regions Think about these different groups. All of these groups were part of Rome's territory. At its zenith, the Roman Empire included most of Europe, which would include England, Wales, Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, Austria, Switzerland, 
Luxembourg, Belgium, Gibraltar, Romania, Moldova, Ukraine. And it would have the northern African coastline, Libya, Algeria, Morocco, Egypt. You had the Balkans as well. You had Albania, Greece, Hungary, Bosnia, Slovenia, Croatia, Bulgaria, Turkey. You also had part of the Mediterranean Sea, the Black Sea, Asia Minor, and the Middle East. You had Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, and Israel. Now, those groups don't mix very well. You get a group of Middle Eastern Arabs hanging out with, again, other groups here. They don't cooperate very well. And I think this is exactly what is going to be emphasized in this final revival of the Roman Empire. Ten kings coming from these vast areas are going to come together, some strong, some weak, but in cooperation together, they're going to rule. I think it is ultimately this geographical connection is what is going to identify this revived Roman Empire. This geographical connection with these various people groups coming together, united to rule and reign in this revived Roman Empire. And they're not going to be very strong. There's going to be conflict. It's interesting. I've seen this. People groups don't tend to cooperate well. It's funny, I was in South America, and you think, well, you know, racism is only blacks against whites. You head to different, you know, South American groups, and you can have, you know, a one, you know, South American group being racist towards another South American group, and you're like, you guys are, look exactly the same. No, we're from this area. Uh, I remember particularly when I went to Ethiopia and uh, would interact with, with people in Ethiopia. And Ethiopians would be very um, clear with you. They would say, we are not black, we are brown. The, you know, the, the Nigerians, they're black. There is a distinction and in their minds, there isn't, a, 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 recon- there isn't a, a union, there isn't connection, there is distinction and separation. People groups separate. We can say, look, our, our skin color is the same, we operate, but if you're not from my same region and from my same area, there is separation. That is, I think, the idea that's going to take place here. You're going to have Middle Eastern customs, Middle Eastern practices mixed with European customs and practices. And in that, there's going to be conflict and disunity. Together, they're going to be strong because politically they can cooperate. Together, they'll be strong because economically they could cooperate and help. But, But individually, both in their religious practices, in their customs, in their traditions, they're going to be greatly divided and therefore weakened. Yet somehow, out of these ten kings, they come and they set up and they rule. They rule over the revived Roman Empire. They rule, of course, as Revelation 17 indicates to us, they rule only for a short period of time. And there's going to be conflict even among those ten kings, as we will see later. Why a revived Roman Empire and not a new empire altogether? Well, because the particular vision indicates for us the continuity of the iron. The iron moves through the legs, even into the feet. The iron is holding together even the clay feet. The iron is the connection. So I think, again, this is referring to the particular geographical area of Rome, First Roman Empire was strong. It was ruled by a single entity, ruled by a single government. 
The second Roman Empire, a revived Roman Empire, is going to be strong, but it is going to be divided by multiple kings, therefore weaker, more brittle. It will be made up of ten kings, that is the feet and the toes. It will be a divided kingdom. Again, that's what verse 41 indicates. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron. It's not going to be a unified whole, but it's going to be a cooperation, a kind of ten-nation confederacy, a ten-nation group operating together to rule. I think, again, it will be part of Rome because it will be revived and most likely, again, from the area of Rome. All that leads to the final aspect of this prophecy. There was Rome which came. There is this future revival of Rome. And after this revival of Rome, immediately in the heels of that, verse 44 indicates that there's the coming of the divine kingdom. That's why in that phrase, in the days of those kings, it's when those kings are up and operating and exercising their authority, then again, the God of heaven will set up the kingdom which will never be destroyed. The The eternal kingdom which is to come will come during that time. And it will, again, crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. And again, the word crushing is rule, it's ruling over, it's destroying, it's wiping out all those other kingdoms. That's why, verse 45, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without, without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, and the clay, and the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. This will come and conquer all of those. When that kingdom comes, the divine kingdom, put an end, and it will endure forever, and there will be none to resist it, and its people will operate under no threats, and they will keep it for all time. Again, we recognize this has not yet happened. Babylon came, that happened. The Medo-Persians came, Greece came, Rome came, but this kingdom has not yet come, and these ten kings have not yet come, and the final aspects have not yet come, and that is what we are waiting for. Of course, then, as Daniel gave the final vision and unfolded this, the details there that Nebuchadnezzar responded, verse 46 through 49, and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, fell on his face, and he did homage to Daniel. And he gave orders to present to him an offering and a fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made requests of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Now again, you see in this final blessing of Daniel the good hand of God providentially directing Daniel. This is the lifting up of Daniel after his three-year training program, after three years of captivity in Babylon. He is now placed at the right hand of the most powerful man on earth. And he is there for a reason. He is there to protect God's people, to protect God's interests, and he's there at the bidding of God. And you see the character of Daniel that he brings along his friends and turns over to his friends these positions of authority and responsibility, and he focuses in on, as the end of verse 49 indicates, serving in the king's courts. 
Daniel was given honor, and he turned around and he used that honor to bless his friends. Just some quick observations on all this. I'm certainly looking forward to getting into the vision more, particularly in chapters 7, 8, and 11, when you see the coming events of the not only of those kings of that time, but I think he also revealed the Antichrist. He revealed the final prophets in that time. And so a lot of great things to get into uh, in the chapters to come. But what we see demonstrated here again is that God's sovereign authority over all the nations, God controlling the particular events, and that God would raise up nations and take away nations, and that God is ultimately working all things to his eternal kingdom, which he's going to set up and rule. For us, again, we have looked at all this and say, well, if out of all of these kingdoms, again, the first four aspects of these kingdoms were literally fulfilled, we would expect that the last two elements are going to be the exact same way. And if God spends the time in particular details, unfolding those particular details and fulfilling those particular details, we expect that he is going to do that as well here. But there is a final rebellion coming. There is then the conquering of that rebellion and that there is ultimately the establishing of God's righteous kingdom. That is what we live in anticipation of. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. So much for this testimony. I mean, as we think about this prophecy given over 2,500 years ago, as you fulfilled the particular details, we live in anticipation of the final events. When all of these prophecies will come together and you will demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're directing and orchestrating all things. In the midst of that, when our hearts grow weary. May we look to your good hand as you've directed, and may our faith be increased. Clearly, that the more we have confidence in your scripture, the more we're confident in your directing and orchestrating all things. And so may, out of the response to this, that we proclaim boldly the riches of your ways, Knowing again that your judgments are true and that none can thwart them, we proclaim to men to be reconciled to God. Help us not to lose doubt when we see the tyranny of sin ruling, when we see the wicked prospering, when we see the unrighteous mocking you. May we not lose heart, but understanding in your patience that you are long-suffering so as to bring all those to yourself that you have numbered from eternity past. And we recognize that we can, as response to these truths, be faithful to carry out your work, proclaiming the gospel, calling all to repentance and faith, so that as the number is completed, you then will complete your final plans and purposes. So increase our faith as we study through Daniel's prophecy And we look forward to the time in which our faith will become sight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.